Hey guys, welcome back to the show where we discuss your psychology, what goes on with you in between your own ears. Yes, we have these problems in our life. We have these symptoms and those are important to, to pay attention to. But ultimately, we have ways that what causes these symptoms, whatever this emotional distress is. Let's say it's insomnia. It's dark outside still, so we'll talk about insomnia. Let's say it's insomnia. Yeah, it's a problem. Let's look at how a mismanagement of emotions causes these symptoms, causes these apparent problems. They're not problems. They're just indications of what's going on. And it may even be helpful if you're dealing with insomnia, for instance, to to consider that. How do you know it's even a problem? I mean, in a broad abstract sense, who are you to say whether that's a problem? How do you know? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's no fun. And yeah, you can and go and and listen to all these guys and read all these books uh, from uh, people from super prestigious universities who tell you that uh, it does all these terrible things to your brain. But at a certain perspective, you got to step back and go, how do I even know this is a problem? Who am I to say, yeah, you know, take your magnesium, take whatever supplements you you, you need to do, do whatever you can to, to minimize the symptom. But also, I think it's good to consider maybe it's not even a problem. Maybe this is just an indication of something I need to work on. Maybe the symptom is putting me in enough pain. I need to get to a place of pain to really manage my issues. And maybe that's what this insomnia is trying to do. It's just trying to make it painful enough. Yeah, it's somewhat painful. And if it's somewhat painful, I'll manage my issues somewhat. But until I'm really in a state of distress, like any other symptom. Okay, so you haven't had a girlfriend in five years. How do you know that's a problem? Maybe that's just what you need to experience at the moment to work through whatever issue you have. The issue's not, uh, it's nothing to do with girlfriends, right? It's what's disconnecting you from girls in the first place. That's, that's the issue. So maybe it's helpful to consider it from that perspective. If nothing else, maybe just take some pressure off yourself, whether it's insomnia, not having a girlfriend in five years. Yeah, I mean, maybe the worst thing, if you haven't had a girlfriend in five years, that's a sign you're disconnected from women. Generally, right? There's a, an infinite array of, of of iterations of that. But that's generally a sign that you're disconnected. The last thing you want is a girlfriend. Because then it's going to be most likely the archetypal tuned out guy, BPD girl. And... You think the last five years of being single were bad? Wait until the next five years of being with this girl. Wait until that. Maybe you need to manage those disconnected issues before you get a girlfriend. Um, yeah, pain's great. Pain is what helps us grow. Speaking of pain, well, it's nothing to do with pain. Okay, so I guess I'll just say I'm recording on my uh, computer camera today. So I got a comment about the uh, audio 
and how there was some static and indeed there was in my phone and I, so I got a new microphone that didn't work so maybe it's something with the adapter or maybe it's even something with the phone I have yet to figure that out so we're going to go uh, re-record on my computer how's that sound? is that good? great so um, what are we talking about today? oh yeah, Ayn Rand it's weird because now I, I don't have my physical notes out I'm, I'm looking at the notes on my computer Maybe if I do this next week, well, I'm not going to change it now, can I? Okay, maybe if I do it th this next week, I won't do a, a presentation like I do, but I'll I'll have you look at my notes. That might be boring. I'll add to the boredom. So we're going to do it, talk about Ayn Rand and what I think about her. I, I got a question from a listener about her, a very general question, uh, nothing too specific. So I'm just going to talk about my experience with her the good, what I think uh, maybe needs to be tweaked a little bit, and some takeaways. So I first read Rand. Uh, first of all, anything I say to, that, that criticizes Rand or objectivism, this is not a criticism of Ayn Rand. This is, maybe I'll probably criticize some objectivists generally, uh, but it's just a criticism of the ideas. I, you know, I think that uh, this is maybe part of the problem that we're getting going to get into. That the problem is generally one of rigidity in objectivism, where the rigidity comes from. I think it comes from a very specific place, philosophically. Psychologically, it comes from a bunch of places, but uh, philosophically, it comes from a very specific part of objectivism, or one part that kind of bleeds into another. We'll see. But, you know, Rand is one of these figures, it, it's like Socrates, right? Right. She is the 20th century version of Socrates. She is poisoning the youth of Athens, of America. And it's one of these people where people uh, only criticize her on, in ad hominem ways, mostly. It's like, oh, wow, you know, she's crazy. She's such a bitch. She was on a bunch of benzos in the 50s. Which may be all true, but my response to that is, so what? You know, why does that matter? So objectivists, I think, tend to have this uh, maybe more of a negative reaction to any criticism of Rand because it's, yeah, you can, you can criticize Rand with the ad hominem and we, we know it's an ad hominem, but, but just culture lets you get away with it with Rand and a few other people, of course, it's not just Rand, but. Especially with Rand, I would say. So, I just have to preemptively say that in this video. Um, but I like Rand. I like Rand a lot. I, I like I like objectivism. I think there's lots of good parts to it. I think there's some negative parts that could be the seeds of its own destruction. But I think there's some great parts in there, too. I first read The Fountainhead when I was 15. I loved it. I, I just always laughable to me the way that opening scene in that book parallels because it works the main character Howard Rourke's getting kicked out of school it's very similar to how I was kicked out of school and that conversation not it's it's not uh, exactly the same but it's uh, it's not too dissimilar I guess but not too dissimilar enough let's say it that way and it helped me a lot uh, but as I got more into it, I saw there were some rigidity problems with, uh, not everybody, but just some of the people, some of like the main objectivists, 
you know, I, I found it, it was like a, a midway kind of thing. Like, the people who just kind of get into objectivism, who know a little bit, I really like them. And the people who are really advanced and do a lot, I really like them. But it was all the people in the middle who <laughs> were the most annoying to me. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about how objectivism helped me. And it probably helped me in a bunch of ways that I can't even put into words. Uh, but... I'm thinking of a few main ways here. The first way is that it really helps you categorize ideas. You know, as you're going through school or graduate school, you get a bunch of ideas thrown at you and they can all seem dissimilar, right? They can all seem to be, oh, this guy says this and this other guy says that, but what objectivism really does, and this really is nothing in objectivism, but they're presentations of other philosophies what they do really well, which is categorize uh, various schools of thought, right? So you have the, the two different metaphysics. You have idealism and materialism. Then you have the two different um, epistemologies. You have uh, rationalism to go with idealism. And then you have empiricism to go with materialism. And it really helps you just wade through all the muck in school and conceptualize it and write about it and think about it and relate to other things when you have okay here's these like these two general schools going on and there's errors in both there's good parts of both but there's also errors in both and it really just helps you become a better thinker and because of that i don't think i would have developed my theory of, of psychology without some kind of influence from objectivism as I've said before, I really got the idea from reading a dissertation from an objectivist philosopher, Harry Binswanger, on the biological basis of uh, teleological concepts. Is right? essentially saying that uh, if we have something in our biology, it is necessarily goal-directed. But I think in a more general sense... I saw these two problems with psychology, especially when I was in grad school. You know, there was the the critical race theory, uh, social justice war, you know, you know, whatever, uh, patriarchy, feminism, whiteness. It's really easy to go, oh, this is materialism. This is empiricism. This is materialism. This is a Marxist iteration of those ideas. And then you had CBT on the other hand, and you go, oh, well, this is clearly idealism. This is clearly rationalism. This is, as Leonard Peikoff would say, M1. And it really helped to just put everything in that context for me to just wade through the muck. And I think I was able to advance, you know, well well beyond my years in the field and come up with a theory of how everything works because... Because of objectivism, is it really objectivism? Yeah, I think objectivism had something to do with it. It was looking at philosophy. It was studying philosophy as a whole through a particular lens of how an objectivist would typically categorize philosophy. I think that was really helpful for me. And the other great thing about, um, about objectivism is it's just anti-authoritarian. And, you know, I talked about the midwit theme. There's a lot of people there in the middle. We, we'll call them brand words, right? You just seem to parrot these talking points without... It doesn't seem like they understand what Ayn Rand or objectivism is saying. So, like, it's authoritarian in that way. But I'm not going to criticize Rand for that. 
necessary. I mean, maybe there's something, you know, you, uh, you hear stories about her inner circle, the collective, they called it back in the 50s and 60s when she was writing Atlas Shrugged, which I did not like. I do not like Atlas Shrugged. I like The Phonehead. I like We the Living. I think those are both superb. We the Living more so. They're both great books. Atlas Shrugged is pretty bad. I don't like it. So we'll, we'll talk about why there's a problem here. Yeah, we'll get that into that with the problems with, uh, with objectivism. What was I saying? Yeah, it's anti-authoritarian. So, you know, there is reality out there. There's your mind in here. And the implication of objectivism is you can figure it out. You know. And really, when you when you read it, yeah, on a first glance reading, or if you get a little bit, yeah, you can pick out some parts where the implication is you better listen to us or you're wrong. And not only are you wrong, but you're evil. I disagree with that term. Um, but but overall, the sense, I mean, that's not the sense that I got, right? That The sense that I got was... No, you can figure this out. You don't have to listen to anybody. You can do your own thing and it'll work out because you have your own judgment. It's it's not, you don't have to have faith. You don't have to have luck. You can do your own thing as long as you are adherent to reality. Your success in life it determines is determined in a large part by how well you think. And what thinking means is how well your mind conforms to reality. Um, so I thought that was really helpful, but there was this, you know, there's some rigidity issues that came up. There's some psychological issues I didn't like, especially after I got into Hugo. Uh, excuse me. I've got a throat issue here. Hoping to hold out, you know, making out with my boyfriend too much. So there's a, a rigidity issue coming up. Um, and it seems to, you know, if I could concretize the rigidity issue or an indication of where this problem would be or an indication of why there's a lot of midwood objectivists who I just wouldn't want anything to do with. It comes down to this question that has come up at various points uh, in certain objectivist circles, let's just say. And that is, so John Galt is the hero of Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, her, her, her ultimate novel, Galt is the ultimate hero of her ultimate novel, and the question is, why wouldn't John Galt, if, if he was out at dinner, why wouldn't he spill wine? Why wouldn't Rand have him do that, right? And I think the answer is, well, it's not essential to his character, spilling wine, so why put it in? And I get that. But maybe spilling wine isn't essential to his character. But what is essential to his character, I think, would be, you know, you know, psychologically, is how he would respond if he did happen to spill wine. You know, I think that would be a great indication of his character. But knowing Rand or what I know of Rand and objectivism, it, it just wouldn't be allowed because it's inessential it doesn't matter as opposed to somebody like 
Jean Valjean in Les Miserables, or Gwynplaine in The Man Who Laughs. I mean, these are characters who mess up on a way bigger level than spilling wine. You know, way, you know, uh, way more immoral actions they take. Is that essential to their character? Is that what Hugo says? No. But what he's saying is what they do to overcome that. That is essential to his character. And that's why Hugo was such a, a psychological breath of fresh air. Is because the implication from Rand and her characters is, is rigidity. Is there is a certain kind of, of rigidity uh, that... You know, if you're out on a date with a girl and you're spilling wine and you mess up, that's a problem. As opposed to how well you can deal with just spilling wine if you're out on a date with a girl, you know. You guys understand what I'm saying? Like, how do you deal with being wrong? How do you deal with messing up? How do you deal with having character flaws exposed put in certain stressful events where your character flaws are exposed how do you overcome that you know th there's none of that in Rand's novels and we're gonna talk about why I think and I think the problem comes down to not to jump too much to another topic but the problem comes down to induction and epistemology you know which makes sense because I think Rand rightly pointed out that epistemology was the the center of of philosophy. It's not metaphysics. I mean, metaphysics is the study of reality. That's great. Oh, I think I sneeze. Um, let me repress. That don't, I'm not going to repress that sneeze. I'm going to suppress it. I'll, I'll uh, sneeze later. Um, so epistemology induction. There is a... Um, yeah, so epistemology is the central point of philosophy because it's not reality. You think it would just be the study of reality, but, but we got to connect with reality in order to study it. So it's really epistemology. And um, objectivism paints this view of induction, which is going from particulars, going from concretes to generalizations, going from facts to truths. That's inductive. You, you kind of figure out what's similar about the facts of reality or certain aspects of an event or a phenomenon. And you, how do you group those pieces together to create a truth to create a generalization and objectivism has an answer it says you look at the cause of each of those particulars and i think that's true the problem is i don't know if that's the only way you can induce or come to um, abstract truths um you know because we have this thing you know it's the problem of induction yeah how do you group those particulars together we know what happens, right? Because there is such a thing called truth. It it exists. We know what happens, but how exactly does it happen? Objectivism, uh, they they say how it happens. And I don't, you know, I'm not an objectivist. I, I studied it. It's, it's helped me a lot. So maybe I'm saying something wrong here. But they have a very clear, definitive way of how it happens. 
Rand talks about in Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Then there's this other great book, A Logical Leap by an Objectivist Philosopher, David Harriman, I think. And also Leonard Peikoff has uh, several lectures on in, on induction and physics and philosophy, and I think that's all really helpful, you know, if, if you care about philosophy. So what I'm trying to say is objectivism says, yeah, there's one way to to go about induction, but I don't, look, I don't know if that's true. Um, I think there's multiple ways, and I don't think we understand all the ways, and I don't even think we understand the mental processes. Yeah, we can look at abstract steps in induction, which I'm not going to get into, I, I just... If you want me to do a separate presentation on, on induction, let me know, but that's philosophy. I'm, I just want to keep this to psychology as much as possible. I think there's more ways for induction, and I don't think we understand the processes that that are, are really entailed in induction. So what objectivism says is how you arrive at abstract truths, well, it's this rigid process. It's actually a quite rigid process. So if you don't do that, then you're wrong. And if you're wrong, then you're evading reality. And if you're evading reality, you know, that that's the cardinal sin of objectivism is evasion, the evasion of the facts of reality. Okay, so, you know, there's some such a thing called um, procedural knowledge and, and declarative knowledge. Uh, I'm going to talk about this a couple weeks ago with riding a bike or, you know, it's, it's with anything, like riding a bike, swinging a hammer. Okay, so you can give me a bunch of declarative knowledge on why a hammer works as a tool, how it works as a lever, how the weight of the hammerhead it, it helps you hammer, you know, how, how the muscles work in your arm, you know, the radius and all that, how that works, the brachialis. That doesn't help you swing a hammer any better. Uh, so... To swing a hammer better, you gotta swing a hammer. And what are the processes behind doing that? Now, objectivism acknowledges that swinging a hammer will is the only way to get better at swinging a hammer. I'm sure they would even say that learning about swinging a hammer may help to some degree. You may learn some mechanical advantage you can get from swinging a hammer a certain way if you really understand the declarative knowledge behind it, but it's you know, the, the amount that's going to help you swing an actual hammer is going to be relatively minimal compared with the experience of swinging the hammer. So they acknowledge that that is true, but they don't give the processes to how that works. And nobody does, by the way. You know, nobody does. I'm not criticizing objectivism for not having a, a clear process for um, for how that works, but they seem to put it in the context of uh, they, they know the one way to induction, but I don't think they do. And so I think this is lends to rigidity. I mean, this is like the one, the one issue I see. And, you know, if, if I'm wrong about this, let me know. This is the one issue I see that just kind of, because it's at the cent center of the philosophy and just kind of reverberates throughout the whole thing. And, uh, causes the phenomenon of the randroid, the, the personality, psychological rigidity, which we're going to get into that. that I think that's a, a little bit separate issue. You know, okay, so Francis Crick, who discovered the double helix of, of DNA, he took LSD and he had that 
realization. How, how did that happen? He's right, I guess. I don't know much about DNA, but let's just assume he's right. What were the processes behind that? You know, I, I don't think we know. Now, that doesn't matter so much, I think. And I talk about it a little bit in my book with intuition. Right now, objectivism would say intuition is irrational. Uh, no, I don't think it is. Your intuition can be wrong, right? Just because you can take a lot of LSD and have an insight, that insight could be wrong. It, it could be right. We, we got to come up with a way to test whether that is correct or incorrect. That's the main thing. And that's what Aristotle talks about. That's what somebody like Karl Popper would talk about, which I think, which, yeah, yeah, he's in my notes here. We're going to talk about him. So that's, that's the main issue, I think, is they, is there's this thing called induction. Yes, it exists. Yes, we need to talk about it. And it's, you know, way better than these other philosophers who, like Hume, who would say it's impossible. But. I don't think it's this rigid process and I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know what the, what the beliefs are. Okay. So, so another example, maybe to help clarify this is with the vaccine, you know, the COVID vaccine, when that came out, there were objectivists who were for it and said, Oh, you got to take it. Otherwise you're anti-science and, and all this. And I think they were playing into that a lot. And then there were objectivists saying, no, we're not taking this vaccine and I and it caused somewhat of a split in objectivism. I mean, it caused a split in America. I mean, I'm just it's not just the fault of objectivism. I think it happened to all of us. But but I think the reason why it caused the split is because typical objectivists would say there's only one right way. There's only one right process to a generalization, which is mm, I'm not going to trust the vaccine. Versus, yeah, you better trust the vaccine. How do our beliefs inform that? You know, maybe somebody who didn't trust the vaccine, an objectivist, just had some implicit belief in there of I'm less likely to trust the government because of certain experiences that I've had. And that doesn't make me right. That doesn't make me wrong. But it leads me to this general conclusion of, you know, I'm just not going to do it. I don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong, but I'm just kind of weighing the odds and I'm not going to do it versus another objectivist who maybe hadn't had certain experiences. And so they're more likely to trust the science and trust what Fauci said. And, um, right. So, so there's different. Induction is complicated. Well, I think it can be simple in certain contexts, but in a lot of contexts, I think it's complicated. And to paint it as this rigid thing that we've figured out in this uh, 200-page book or this 10-part lecture, I think that's a bit of a leap. Now, the other problem with objectivism is uh, it places, and I, I people have, have talked about this, I think, more often um, than the other one, than the induction. Sorry, I'm playing with my hair, looking at myself. Uh, is that places a lot of emphasis on volition. Yes, free will exists. And I think, you know, if I could <clears throat> psychoanalyze objectivism here, I think it's, it's a big response to the 20th century, the main view in the 20th century of free will is it doesn't exist. And you could say objectivism 
perhaps unconsciously tries to compensate, and they end up overcompensating for that by saying that free will exists. It, of course it exists, but they seem to treat, and of course they don't say this explicitly, but they seem to treat volition as it were this all-powerful thing. That as soon as you see the facts of reality, your mind changes and that's it without much regard to emotions and how that can provide, you know, some resistance. And just because you have resistance doesn't mean you're wrong or doesn't mean that's bad. That's just natural human. That's what we need to go through. We, we need to go through resistance to let go of some of those, of that emotional baggage, you know, you know, much like, you know, I started talking about in this, in this video, which is if you have insomnia, how do you know that's a problem? Can, another way of saying that is, well, maybe that's just giving you resistance that you need to work on if you haven't had a girlfriend right that's good indication of, of your resistance which is great self-knowledge and you're going to need that for the next stage of your life and, and maybe you're hanging on to this insomnia because you still haven't worked through some of that some of those issues that you're going to need to be able to work through to handle whatever is coming down the road helpful way to think of it right not true in every situation but it's a helpful way to think of it but objectivism, there, there's very little of that. There's, um, you know, there's this famous part in Atlas Shrugged where there's this one woman and there's these three men who she's into. And the, the way that she moves from one of the men to another man romantically seems to happen in the drop of a hat solely because this other man is the main hero that, you know, John Gall, he is the ideal man. And the little bit less ideal man Hank Reardon, who's still a cool guy. There's, it, she just seems to move on naturally, and he's like, "Yeah, I get it. No, no problem." That's weird, right? I mean, that's I, I understand the point that she's making is that love is a response to virtue. Its virtue is values. You're you're generally going to be more in love with somebody who shares your values. I get that. It's just weird edit. So there's no resistance there. Maybe there's a little, but it's just, it's weird, right? So you can infer, I, I think it's right for people to infer that because Rand presents much of her philosophy in novels, which I don't think is a bad way to do it. I mean, she gets criticized for that. That No, I think that's a great way to present a philosophy. But at the same time, I think it's also right to infer that, well, maybe this belief that volition is all powerful is uh, is part of the philosophy too though rand does not say that explicitly can you infer it sure so this is why we get a lot of moralizing i think in in objectivism because they they just don't understand psychology and it's not a, a dig on objectivism Excuse me, it's not a dig on objectivism only. A lot of people don't understand psychology, but uh, objectivism has standards. Objectivism has expectations for your behavior. The way a lot of people hide around not understanding psychology is just not have standards and say, oh, do whatever you want. But if you have standards, if you have expectations and you don't understand psychology at all, get ready. There's going to be a lot of moralizing in your future. There's going to be a lot of, yeah. Now, 
moralizing isn't explicitly part of your philosophy and your worldview, I don't care. It doesn't matter. If there's expectations and very little understanding of psychology, you are going to go around judging people and it's going to come off very grim. And you're going to be saying things like evil just because somebody doesn't align with your exact view of how induction works. And that's the only way that it works. Um, because the other part I want to say about brand, I, I, I don't have anything more negative to say, but just as a different view, and I'm not saying Karl Popper's right about everything, but I think it may be a more helpful view to take to induction is somebody like Karl Popper. Um, you know, may, maybe there's a way to combine what Rand says about induction and what, what Karl Popper says about falsifiability. I'm, I'm not smart enough to put all that together, but, but I'm, but I'm just offering here as a solution to this issue. What Karl Popper says, well, and it's very similar to Rand in a lot of ways, uh, but it's not, um, not exactly similar, but, but I, I think the main difference is one of attitude. It's attitudinally different. See, um, objectivism gets criticized for being in, in favor of absolute truth. Like there's certainty and there's uncertainty. And that's not true. Objectivism doesn't say that. Uh, that gets confused a lot. And maybe that's objectivist fault, objectivism's fault for calling itself objectivism. But that's not true. Objectivism says there's truth in a certain context. Is it true that um, that the sun is is just a, a bright light in the sky? Well, that's true. Now, it's not true in, in our context of knowledge, what we know here, but if you go to some... Uh, indigenous tribe who hasn't had contact with science yeah that's true and objectivism would say that's true given their context of knowledge um and that's what Karl popper says in a little bit different way you know for, for for okay what i'm trying to say is for objectivism truth is this thing out there and you better understand it you better get it and if you don't get it you're wrong what Karl popper his um view is Yes, there is truth out there, but on our path to truth, it's not a direct line. It's not this direct process of induction that's outlined in this book, right? It's, it's full of error. And so what Popper offers us is a way to correct error. What objectivism is, is a way to bask in truth. And both those are right. You just got to figure out a way, I think, to combine those just to make it more useful overall. Um, right? It's context, right? Objectivism talks about context a lot. There's, if you can only be certain in a, in a context of facts that you know, or, uh, you know, Popper talks about falsifiability. Yes, this theory is right. It's right in the fact that it has yet to be disproven even partially disproven right and i i think that's that's an important part that that Rand misses now you can call that philosophy yeah i think part of that is philosophy by having this rigid view of induction but part of that psychology too um as aggravated i think by by the 
by, by the view of volition. And but by the way, I, I think um, objectivism's view of volition, that it's this all-powerful thing, implicitly makes them latch on to something like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of accepted by the objectivists, by, you know, by the main objectivists, we'll just say ARI, ARI the Ayn Rand Institute. Even though it's clear, it's, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is clearly an M1 error, it's a misintegration. Uh, but I think their proclivity to rely on, as I'm, I'm just repeating myself, right? So the takeaway here is, look, I mean, there is truth out there. There's a mind in here. There is truth out there. There's a, a path to that. Uh, and objectivism, you know, helps you. It, uh, for me, though, I'm not an objectivist. You know, I'd call myself uh, somebody who has studied objectivism. And I, it's helped me. It's given me tools. But I'm, I'm not going to call myself an objectivist. I probably never will. Because the path of truth, it's not direct. Right? It's full of errors. It's full of potholes. And if you ask an objectivist that, they would say, yes, that's true. But objectivism offers no way to manage those errors. It doesn't offer that. And it can even imply that having an error is wrong. You're wrong for having errors. You're, it, it could even be implied given the way that Rand's philosophy was initially presented to the public, that spilling wine at dinner is wrong. and could even say something bad about you. Um, yeah, the path of truth requires a correction of, of error. That's the main thing. Uh, objectivists, they say they believe that, but yeah, it doesn't come off that way. I think it's um, objectivism. Everything there is correct, but it's not complete. You know, it's, that's what I say about my my view of, of of emotions and how they work. And so, by because of that, how uh, therapy and how it works is, I think what I have here is correct, but I'm not going to say it's complete. I think that would just be, you know, I mean. My head's pretty far up my ass, but that would just, my head would be so far up my ass at that point if I said that. It's not complete. You know, I'm sure there's things that I'm missing. That's okay. But that that doesn't mean what I have isn't useful. It can still be really useful. It's just going to require uh, some, uh, some, uh, some editing. I mean, you add some things that are really important that I'm missing. That's okay. And I think the same thing is true of objectivism. That's okay. But the problem is that objectivists go around saying that it's true. And, and it's everything. It's not. I think they need to understand psychology more. I think they need to understand how to correct error more. I think they need to read a little bit more Hugo. R read this guy about, read about Jean Valjean and how he completely messes, he messes up in the most fundamental way. He commits the objectivist cardinal sin of, of evasion. And he works through it. He becomes, he, he becomes a better man for it. They need to read Faust. Not Faust part one. Yeah, read that. But also Faust part two. Faust messes up in the most fundamental way. How does he work through that? How does he get to the place where you think he's going to hell? He actually goes to heaven. 
I think that needs to be in your philosophy. And I think when it's not, then you get the rigidity problem that we have. Okay, so thank you, everybody. I know that went a little long. Um, let me know what you think, right? Um, animus at animusempire.com. Uh, if you have any questions for me, you know, I, I did this because of a question from a listener. I, I love answering your questions. It just really helps me to know what's going on with you guys, what you're thinking about. I think we have a video coming out next week on uh, a couple things. One of them is on the serious young man phase. So we're going to talk about that. And we do free consultations, of course. Like if, if you want to know more about the therapy that I do, uh, animus, animusempire.com slash schedule, free consultations. Just reach out. Let me know what's going on. It helps you. It helps me. So thank you guys. I'll leave it there. And I wish you all the pain and joy that comes from your own pursuit of truth.